Welcome here this morning and Merry Christmas to you. We're here this morning to talk about the, the great reality of what God did in sending his son. And, and we're looking at Luke chapter 1, as you see there on the screen, Luke chapter 1, 26, and on through verse 55 or 56 this morning. But I wonder if you're asking the question, as we have just had this scripture reading from 1 Samuel, why would we read this passage? It doesn't sound like a Christmas story. And, and, and I want you to think about that as we actually begin to read the text that we're going to be addressing this morning. And I'm going to give you a cue when you should specifically, if you still have your finger in 1 Samuel chapter 2, look down and see how God was pointing forward to this very moment that we celebrate this morning as we read Luke chapter 1. And so if you, if you want to have your finger in both places, Luke chapter 1, we're beginning in verse 26, and you can keep your finger in 1 Samuel chapter 2, which is the prayer of Hannah, the mother of Samuel. So let's read together uh, Luke chapter 1 and verse 26 through, we'll read through verse 55. This is what God says to us this morning. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be? Since I am a virgin. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And now follow in 1 Samuel chapter 2 and hear the Magnificat in a new way. This is what Mary said. Now is Mary's song of joy. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercies. He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring. Forever. Did you notice any similarities as we traveled through the two passages in parallel? 
I, I just want to point out too this morning that it will form the groundwork for everything that we're going to talk about afterward. And these are the two commonalities that we'll call attention to this morning. First, God is high, and from his position as the God who is high, he exalts the lowly. That's, that's a common theme in both songs. Luke chapter 1 and verse 48 says, For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, for behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. So in the position of humility, God looks, he sees, and he exalts. In 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 4, The bows of the mighty, those who are great, are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. God is high, and he exalts the lowly. But also, God is strong, and he brings down the mighty. God is strong, and he brings down the mighty. Hear what it says in Luke chapter 1, verse 51 and 52 again. He has shown strength. This is God. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. And again in 1 Samuel chapter 2, and this time in verse 4, the bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. That was the one I intended for that one. Excuse me. 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 8 was the other one. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. God is high. He exalts the lowly. God is strong. He brings down the mighty. Theologian Benjamin Glad calls this a great reversal. A great reversal. And it really is because the humble are placed in the seat of honor while the proud are scattered in their thoughts. They're taken down from their high position while those who are low are brought high. And it is this, the unthinkable glory of the incarnation, when the high came low, and when those who were low were brought high, that we focus on this morning. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come this morning desiring to exalt in you the high and mighty God who is above all, who came to the very lowest place to exalt those who are low. We ask that you'd open your word to us this morning and by your Holy Spirit do that in our hearts which most fittingly testifies to the message of Christmas. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. I wonder if you were to think about some way that God could demonstrate that he is utterly in control of all things, what you would choose. I mean, when it comes to the idea that God is actually able to do the impossible, that nothing is impossible with God, where would you begin? I mean, you could certainly do something like point back to creation. I mean, the fact that God literally spoke the worlds into existence by the word of his power is definitely a demonstration of, of his almightiness. Or, or you might go on into other biblical history, like the time when a massive army was defeated by 300 sort of soldiers. And you could say, wow, I mean, that's definitely a demonstration of God's power. Or, or you might even look to some of the miraculous healings that happened throughout the Bible, uh, like maybe the healing of Naaman the leper. You remember Naaman? Naaman the leper who comes and... and uh, the prophet tells him, go bathe in the Jordan seven times. He says, well, we've got better rivers than this back home. But he does it anyway because his servant says, I mean, wouldn't you do something great if the, if the prophet told you to do that? So let's do something simple and just see what happens. And his skin comes clean. He's fresh as a baby after dipping in that dirty water of the Jordan. That would be a pretty good place to point at the almighty power of God or, or Maybe you would think of something else. Maybe you'd even think of something in your own experience, in your own life, where it's like, you know, if God were to do this, it would testify to the fact that God can really do anything. Maybe it's a relationship. And you say, you know, I mean, to put that relationship back together would definitely be a testimony to the almighty power of God. And you aren't wrong. But when God decided to point out the almightiness of his power, to say, in essence, 
exactly what we're told here by the angel, that nothing is impossible with God, he did something very interesting. And he pointed back to a long line of, well, of barren women. He pointed backward to women who had been unable to bear children, but who were able to bear children through the miraculous power of God. For example, there's, there's actually seven of them in the Old Testament. One is Sarah. You'll remember Sarah, who was the mother to Isaac. And, and she stands as kind of a special case because she was not only barren, but she was old. She was, she'd been barren all her life. Now she's 90 years old. And God says to her, uh, you will bear a son. And you remember she laughed? You can get why. It's like, no, no, no. This is utterly impossible. And I mean, she actually put it in these terms. She said, I'm worn out like an old garment. If you kind of play that language out. I'm worn out like an old garment, and my husband is almost 100. This is just utterly impossible. But she indeed, did indeed bear a son. Or you might think of Rebecca, who bore Esau and Jacob. She too was barren, and Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebecca conceived. Or you could think of Rachel, Rachel, the wife of Jacob and the mother of Joseph and Benjamin. It says in Genesis chapter 30 and verse 23, Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. This is a direct intervention of God to give conception to a barren woman. You might remember Manoah's wife. She's not named in the Bible, but you probably know the name of her son because his name was Samson. And Manoah's wife, too, was barren. And the angel of the Lord, it says in Judges 13, appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you're barren. She knew this. And have not born children. She knew that, too. But he, she did not know this. You shall conceive and bear a son. And sure enough, Samson was born. You might remember the one that we're looking at in 1 Samuel chapter 2 this morning. Hannah, who was barren and who pled before the Lord with tears for a son. The Lord had closed her womb, it says, actually. And as she went up to worship the Lord, she promised that if God would give her a son, that she would give that son back to God and he would be a Nazarite all the days of his life. And sure enough, God answered her prayer did something miraculous, something impossible, and gave this barren woman a son. There's another one. The woman is, both un, uh, is unnamed and her son is unnamed, but we know of her as one of the very important people in the life of the prophet Elisha. This is the Shunammite woman. And the Shunammite woman, she was a wealthy woman who cared for Elisha, set up a room for him so that when he was traveling and was in her area, he'd have a place to stay. And Elisha was thinking of something that he could do to reward her, some way that he could say thank you to this woman. And this is what it says. Elisha told her at this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. Listen to what she said. She said, no, my Lord, O oh man of God, do not lie to your servant. But the woman conceived, and she bore a son. I mean, that's just how straightforward the Bible puts it. Do not lie to your servant, but the woman conceived, and she bore a son. You might be thinking about Elizabeth, whose story is intertwined with our story this morning. Elizabeth, who was also barren, the wife of Zechariah, the mother of John the Baptist, and Relative of Mary says in Luke chapter 1 and verse 7, they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and like Sarah, she too was advanced in years. She was old and had been barren all of her days. So a barren woman in the Bible is, is like a metaphor for the power of God when he brings to that woman who could not bear a child. He gives to her conception. It, so if you want to know how powerful God is, you, you really don't need to look further. This is the God who is so powerful that he opens and closes the womb. God takes special interest in the conception and the birth of every child. And, and this God 
who set up the natural processes by which children are brought into the world has never taken his hand out of it, but retains a direct interest in every child's birth. Listen, you know from Psalm 139 that he knows you before you're born, that he weaves you together in your mother's womb. And occasionally, throughout biblical history, he has highlighted his special care about the birth of babies. Uh, he's highlighted his personal involvement by interrupting the normal processes to show how much he cares. Now, the conception of every child is very important to God, very special, because of the life of the child that's conceived. But I wonder if you notice, as we just went through that list of barren women in the Old Testament, that when God interrupts the process, every single time, there's a very special child about to be born. I look at it just briefly here. Sarah, she bore Isaac, one of the patriarchs. Rebecca, Jacob, and Esau. Jacob being one of the patriarchs. Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin, two of the tribes of Israel right there. Manoah's wife, she bore Samson, one of the judges of Israel. Hannah, she bore Samuel, one of the most important judges of Israel. And the predecessor to the Davidic line eventually, because it was he who anointed King David. Elizabeth, well, she, she was the mother of John the Baptist. And you might say, well, what about the Shunammite woman? Well, do you remember the story? We don't know the boy's name. We never are told. But his life was very important because of all of the things that happened in the Bible that evidence the miraculous power of God in addition to the fact that God gave this woman conception who had been barren. You'll remember that at one point when the child was a boy, when, the, when he was still young, that the mother found that he had a terrible headache, basically, and he died. And then the mother races off to meet Elisha. And you might remember the story. Elisha comes and he raises the boy from the dead. How important is that? That one out of the very small number of resurrections from the dead in the Bible, this boy was one. So every single time that God interrupts the normal process... In giving conception to a barren woman, he does so for the purpose of an amazing person who's about to take the stage of this world and demonstrate something of the uniqueness and power and glory of the God of the universe. So you could say this, just how glorious is God? How great is he? Listen to what the psalmist says in Psalm 113, verses 4 through 9. The Lord is high... Above all the nations, his glory is above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks down on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust. You can hear Hannah's song, Mary's song there. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. And what's the great big evidence of how great God is that the psalmist calls on? Listen, he gives the barren woman a home making her the joyous mother of children. So the psalmist, when he wanted to talk about how great this God is, who sits in the heavens and looks down upon the earth, who raises the poor from the dust, he says, he's so great. He's so amazing. He's so powerful that he actually can give barren women a home and make them the joyous mothers of children. Wow, what, what a God. So a barren woman bearing a child is really a picture of the power of God. But never in the entire history of the world and in all seven times when God gave conception to a barren woman, never has there ever been a virgin conception. So, so let me just trace this with you. If, in fact, a barren woman giving birth is a picture, a metaphor for the power of God which is unstoppable, unthinkable, inconceivable. What is it that God can give a virgin a child? In Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, we actually have this prophecy that is repeated in Matthew, not here in the Luke passage, but repeated in Matthew, that tells us that behold, a virgin 
will conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. And I want to point out to you briefly, this is a long discussion when we talk about Isaiah chapter 7, but I want to point out to you that God is so beautiful in the way that he unpacks the idea which will be ultimately fulfilled in the Lord Jesus that he actually produces for us a double fulfillment of the prophecy. Because there was a boy, Emmanuel, who was in the land at the time, who was born to a young woman who ceased to be a virgin after she conceived by a man. And this boy actually did live, and the two kings that were dreaded at that time in the land of Israel did not... uh, their land, the two kings, the land whose two kings you dread would be deserted. So those two kings, their lands were deserted, and the sign came to pass exactly as God said it would. But the ultimate fulfillment is yet to come. This is what Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown in their Bible commentary says. They say language is selected here in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, that, uh, as such, that while particular, partially applicable to the immediate event that was happening in Isaiah's time, it receives its fullest, most appropriate, and exhaustive accomplishment in messianic events, the things that were to happen when Jesus was born. The wording is such as to apply more fully to Jesus Christ than to the prophet's son. Virgin applies in the simplest sense to the Virgin Mary rather than to the prophetess who ceased to be a virgin when she conceived. Emmanuel, God with us, cannot in a strict sense apply to Isaiah's son, but only to him who is presently called expressly the child, the son, wonderful, the mighty God. Barren women conceiving, that's an amazing testimony to the power of God. A virgin conceiving, (laughs) that's impossible. That never, ever Happens. So this is a miraculous pinnacle. Only twice in the entire history of the human race had God made a person by direct creative act. And you know both of them. Adam and Eve. Two in the entire course of human history. Except there was a third. Because God directly intervened, giving to a virgin who did not know a man. That's very interesting. If you actually look at the word underneath the New Testament word for virgin, it does not mean just a young woman. It means she had no relationship with a man. There was no man involved. This was the direct, creative act of God. The virgin conception and birth of the Lord Jesus was really, though, a signal. A signal of something, get this, as unbelievable as it is that, some, that a barren woman should bear a child, as unbelievable it is that a virgin should bear a child, there is something more unbelievable, and that is that this signals the incarnation, that God himself would dwell with us in flesh. Luke one thirty five, one of the verses we read, says, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Listen, therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. The idea of holy is to be different, to be set apart, to be unique, to be separate. And how was Jesus separate? Well, he was the Son of God. Imagine Simeon, later on, taking this baby in his arms and looking into the face of his creator. Imagine Joseph and Mary teaching this baby to eat the one who feeds the world through his abundant provision. It is just inconceivable. J.I. Packer says this, he says it is here, in the thing that happened at the first Christmas, that the profoundest and most unfathomable depths of the Christian revelation lie. The word became flesh. God became a man. 
The divine Son became a Jew. The Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, unable to do more than lie and stare and wriggle and make noises, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. And there was not illusion or deception in this. The babyhood of the Son of God was a reality. The more you think about it, says Packer, the more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction, he says, is so fantastic as this truth of the Incarnation. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, it's an astonishing thing that there should have been a Christ at all. The Incarnation is the miracle of miracles, that He who is the infinite should become an infant, that He who made the world should be wrapped in swaddling bands, remains a fact out of which, as from a hive, new wonders continually fly forth. In His complex nature, He is so mysterious and yet so manifest that doubtless all the angels of heaven were and are astonished at him. Joel Beakey puts it this way, the sheer magnitude of the incarnation is so incomprehensible we could borrow the language of the Apostle Paul that we see it only through a glass darkly. He says, describing the incarnation in human language is like painting a mountain on a grain of sand We stand before this abyss of glory and know that we can never reach the bottom. The incarnation really is the ultimate test of impossibility. In Genesis 18, 13, the Lord said to Abraham, what we've referenced already, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? But in Luke 1.36, it's at a whole new level because the angel speaks and says almost exactly the same thing to Mary, but the stakes are higher because he promises to give conception not to a barren woman, but to a virgin. And he says, nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing. Not a virgin conception and birth. Not the Son of God taking on flesh. Not the God, not the Word of God who spoke the worlds into existence, being unable to speak a single Hebrew word. Not the power of the Almighty God being as yet unable to walk. The coming down of the eternal God is even more unthinkable than his exaltation. Exaltation is his natural state. He is the highest God. He is the God above all gods, the king above all kings. That is who he is. What's astounding, what's astonishing, what's unthinkable is that he would come down. How could the maker of the world enter the world he made? How could he drink deeply of its suffering, even tasting of its death by becoming a curse for us? For Jesus to be exalted is to return to what he's always known. There's never been a time when he has not been exalted. Exaltation is what he deserves, but humiliation... God really invested all the power of the Creator in coming down. He fashioned the body that He Himself would inhabit so that He could be hungry, but not succumb to the temptation to turn stones into bread, so that He could be tired, so tired that He fell asleep on the cushion in the boat on a raging storm so that he could feel pain, so that his beard could be pulled out, so that his back could scrape on the rough wood of a Roman cross, so that he could bleed and die. Mary didn't know all this at the time that the angel spoke to her. She only knew that it was impossible for her to have a baby and that it was impossible that her baby could be God. But that's what the angel said. And that is what Mary embraced. Behold, she says, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. The incarnation is the ultimate test of impossibility. But I want you to feel the overflow of faith that's happening here. The overflow of faith because 
many times as we read the Bible, we read it kind of like a dusty volume that's way back in the back part of the library, and the pages are starting to turn yellow, and you have to blow the dust off in order to be able to look at it, and they kind of use funny old print, and we think that that's what was really happening in the stories, but let me tell you, these were real people experiencing real things, so I want you to feel the emotion in this amazing greeting as Mary, in verse 39, arises and goes to the hill country in, in Judah, and as she greets Elizabeth, and in verse 41, it says, When Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth, it says, is filled with the Holy Spirit and cries out loudly. Actually, she's shouting, according to the language here. She's shouting. I'm not going to do it for you. I'm not trying to hurt your ears this morning. But she was shouting, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Can you feel the emotion? Can you feel the joy in this amazing greeting of Mary by Elizabeth? Now, I wonder if you can just put yourself in Mary's sandals for a minute and think about what's just happened. Mary has just been uh, welcomed or spoken to by an angelic visitor. That would be enough. People who saw angels did things like fall down as dead people. And she's just had one of these visitors to her and... um, and, and then the message that the angel gave was impractical, to say the least, and impossible, to say the most. There was just no way that this was going to happen. And then think about the fact that in the times in which Mary lived, adultery was considered a crime worthy of death. In fact, you remember that during Jesus' ministry that they brought to him a woman caught in adultery, and they wanted to do what? Stone her. So now you've had an angelic visitor. That's pretty dramatic. The angelic visitor has given you a crazy sauce message. And the message is putting your life in jeopardy. I mean, there's really not a good explanation. This has never happened in the history of the world. Who's going to believe? Who, who is going to believe that the Holy Spirit has overshadowed me and I've got a child? No, no, barren women have given birth, but virgins, no. No, sorry, that one's outside the box. That doesn't fit the equation. This is just, this is just too much, Mary. But Mary, interestingly enough, does not waver in faith. She just believes what God says. And because she believes, she is filled with pure joy. I wonder if you can think of this, that Mary, as she meets Elizabeth, and as Elizabeth meets Mary, there's this, there's this convergence of joyous people, but you know, we miss one who was there and who is so joyous. Think about this for a moment. Did Mary tell Elizabeth the news? I mean, she was excited, even though this could cost her her life and it was all kind. Yeah, she was so excited, she's racing off to tell her cousin her relative, about this amazing news, but she couldn't get it out of her mouth faster than the Holy Spirit, who is more excited than she. Have you thought about that? That that the Holy Spirit whispered it to the baby, John, who leaps in Elizabeth's womb for joy. It's literally for joy that he leaps inside his mother's womb, and it's then that Elizabeth is shouting for joy, filled with the Holy Spirit, shouting for joy, because the Holy Spirit has told her Before Mary even got the words out of her mouth. All of human history had been building to this particular moment. This moment in which God would resolve the great problem that began at the fall. In which he would undo beginning the great shout of triumph. Undo the things that sin had done. And the Holy Spirit is so excited. He doesn't wait for Mary. Now, they did have a tremendous sharing of their joy then as as they jumped into the news together. 
You understand what it's like to get news that's so good you just can't wait to tell it. Maybe you just got a call from the doctor and he says it's not cancer. Or, or, or maybe the boss just gave you a good review and with it a raise. Or, or maybe they just accepted the offer you put on the house. Or, or maybe she said yes. You immediately wanted to tell someone. You had to run to tell someone. A joy shared is really twice the joy. It's a joy multiplied. And so Mary and Elizabeth, here we see, are rejoicing together. But even more, they're rejoicing in the work of God because they catch in what God is doing here the greatness, not of just what he was doing for them, though that was very important, but the greatness of what he was doing for all people through these little people. We're now on the way. The moment the news of the incarnation hit for Mary and for Elizabeth, it produced a shockwave of joy for those who embraced it by faith. That's the overflow of faith, but, but I want to point out to you, too, the triumph of God. I've told you that the test of impossibility is really the incarnation. This is the ultimate test of impossibility. It could not be that the highest of the high would come to dwell in human flesh. And, and that the overflow of faith is joy, but now the triumph of God is in coming down. You might cast your line all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 and remember that this story, which is here taking a dramatic turn in the incarnation, had been promised since the very beginning. This is what it says in Genesis 3 and verse 14. God is actually in this particular passage speaking to the serpent who is the, the one who had deceived the woman and he's cursing him because of his part in the fall of man. And he says this, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. Basically you're going to live the lowest life, he says to the snake. Satan. But God didn't stop with that. He said this, I will, speaking again to the snake, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Now, I know there are some people that like snakes. I'm just not one of them. Uh, but this isn't really primarily talking about a relationship between people and snakes. It's primarily talking about the fact that this serpent's wicked action was an act of war. It was a challenge to his creator. Like Goliath, he said, who will dare to engage me? If your first parents, Adam and Eve, surrounded by a perfect garden without a single need, did not stand against me, who will ever be able to stand? And God answers the Goliath, taking up the humble sling of humanity. He, he, this seed of the woman, he, a true man, he shall bruise your head and you shall, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. R.C. Sproul points out that this is really the image of a man stomping a snake to death. He's, yes, bruised his heel in stomping its head, but the serpent dies. This is the image that brings us back to Luke chapter 1 and to Mary's song of joy. I wonder if you've ever listened to a great symphony. We had the chance recently to um, go up to Vancouver, B.C. to hear the Vancouver Symphony Orchestra. We did it for Rose's birthday. And uh, there's a symphony that I've loved for a very long time, for over 30 years, uh, by Sanson. And it's called the Organ Symphony. Some of you might have heard of the Organ Symphony or heard it actually played. It's amazing, and if you get a pipe organ in real life to play it, it's astonishing. And uh, we went to hear this four-part symphony, and you know, Sanson was a master composer, and he did something very interesting, like many of the great composers do. He starts telling you the story of the fourth movement in the first, but only a little bit. 
And then in the second movement, he unveils just a little bit more, and you hear just a tiny bit more of the story of a great melody that's being built. And in the third, as he builds the melody just a little bit more, you, you gather, and, and by the time you hit the fourth movement and the organ barrels in on the first notes of that fourth, fourth movement of that symphony, you are prepared for the great melodic triumph of the composer. And that's what's happening here. God has been telling little pieces of the story all along. He's told that through the prophets. He's told it through the reign of the kings. He's told it through the songs of the psalmist. He's told it through the words of the law. But now, in a rush of the Spirit and in the early whispers of what will become a shout of power, we hear the first notes of the full, joyous melody that has always been the plan of God. My soul, Mary says, magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. This God, the great God, the King above all kings, has come to dwell with us. Really, Mary's song has several important parts to it. We're only going to touch just a few in these last moments here, but I want to point them out for you so that you too can take hope and faith, as did Mary, in the impossibility but the certainty of what God would do. God sees. God sees me. Mary says he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. Listen, God never does his work at your expense. The God who would stoop so low as to wrap himself in flesh in the womb of Mary. This God knows and understands our weaknesses and our needs. And he doesn't despise us. We're not just one more troop in a nameless, faceless battalion sent out to war. He personally, listen to the personalness of this. He personally looks upon the humble estate of his servant. Mary wasn't just lost in the shuffle. Oh, God was doing the work of the ages in bringing the Son of God into the world who would bear our sin. But Mary herself was not lost to God. Please hear the very personal nature of Mary's song. She doesn't just rejoice that God is doing great things for the world, though He is. She rejoices in what God has done for her by involving her in His plan. And that's a joy that we can share. Wherever you are, whatever you're experiencing today, God sees you. And he's using your circumstances to do his work and to bless you. Yes, he's doing the work of the kingdom through you. But he's also working for you in the very best way possible. God can the place of usefulness in the kingdom of God is your own inability and need. God can. The place of usefulness to God is your own inability and need. I want you to realize that Mary, describing herself as being of humble estate, was right. She was. She's not putting on just a, a lot of fake humility. She was of humble estate. And listen to this. That wasn't a detraction to the plan of God. That did not deter him. It was actually an asset. God's not looking for powerful people. Mostly. He's looking for weak people. He's looking for weak people through whom he can showcase his glory and demonstrate his power. There is a great battle to be won. And it's most glorious for God. To win it through weak people. The author of Hebrews puts that very idea in chapter 2, verses 14 through 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, Jesus himself, likewise partook of the same things. He became flesh. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Did you catch that? The incarnation of our Lord Jesus made it possible for the immortal God to die. And because he could die, he could kill death. 
and deliver those who through fear of death, that's us, are subject to lifelong bondage and he could destroy the devil. He could stomp the serpent's head. So now we stand in Jesus' place in the world and in the weakness of our flesh we testify to the power of the incarnation again and again, shouting out the ancient melody, out of weakness, strength. Are you weak? You're in a great place for God to demonstrate his power. God keeps, God keeps his promises. The length of the wait does not mean that God is late. This is what it says in Galatians chapter 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. In the very beginning, Genesis 3.15, God announced his plan to do the greatest deed, to win the greatest battle through the humblest weapon and at unspeakable personal cost. This was the moment. This was the moment. All creation stands poised for the opening notes of the triumph of God's unfolded melody as he sings through Mary in his victory. He has shown strength with his arm. He's scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. I've led us through the Christmas story this morning for this part of the Christmas story this morning. We haven't actually gotten to the birth of the Lord Jesus, but I've led us through to give us the chance to fall on our knees before the God of the impossible and to get the privilege of joining the Holy Spirit in the joy of the incarnation and in the opportunity that we have, as did Mary, to join God in his unimaginable work. And to help give shape to our worship, I want to give you just three closing observations. When God wants to do something big, when God wants to do something big, he often starts with the impossible. Let's face it, every time God works, it's glorious. But when God wants to do something especially astonishing, he often begins when it is utterly impossible for anyone but God to do it. It's clear then that this is the work of God. I wonder what the most difficult situation is in your life this Christmas. Maybe it's a health problem or a relationship that you find just can't be mended or a financial hole that's too deep to escape or a job that you don't like and there are no prospects for anything better. Maybe you're grieving and you're longing for someone or something to salve that grief. Or maybe you're depressed and the whole world just looks dark to you. Can you say with Mary this morning, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. That's a statement of faith. God, the God of the incarnation, truly knows no limits to his power. And God, this God of the incarnation, knows no boundaries to his love. The impossibility of the incarnation and its fulfillment proves both, both that God is immeasurably powerful and that he is inexhaustibly loving. There's nothing that God cannot do and there's nothing that he will not do for those he loves. When God wants to do something big, he often starts with the impossible. And when faith overflows, the result is joy. Faith just means that we haven't yet seen the results of what God has already promised. And sometimes it feels like the process by which God is working things out is a bit of a mixed bag. Why do you do it this way? This is going to put me in a tough spot. You can imagine Mary saying, right? Uh, this is going to be hard to explain. I don't even know how much that might have run. I don't think it did run in her mind. I think she was just overwhelmed with joy. But faith, in spite of the odds, explodes in joy anyway. 
We're used to thinking that faith means not doubting, and that's true. It does mean that. But this morning, I want to remind you that it also means not suggesting alternative plans to God. Plans that might keep you from being so at risk. Plans that are more comfortable for you, that work better with your life or with your lifestyle. Plans that don't disrupt or interrupt you. So definitely, faith means not doubting. But the way that we evidence that not doubting is by not having to present to God an alternate plan. I wonder if you can join Mary and Elizabeth and the Holy Spirit in the explosion of joy for what God is going to do, whatever the cost to you personally. When faith overflows, the result is joy. And when God triumphs, the humble are satisfied. Can you believe this morning, right, where you are, in your particular place in life, in the season in which you find yourself, at your job, in your home, with your friends, with the relationships that are in your experience, can you believe that you are at the very best place for the fulfillment of God's purposes? Whether you're young and not quite as old as you want to be, or whether you're old and wish you were a little younger, whether you're single and wish you were married, or married and thinking maybe it'd be nice to be single. Wherever you are at, you are at the place where God can work because he's the God of utter impossibility. Your obscurity, the seeming insignificance of your place are not hindrances to God. In fact, they're exactly the preparation that he uses so that he can receive the praise and that you will be satisfied in him alone. Charles Wesley wrote a beautiful hymn that helps to capture all that we've said this morning in a few simple words, and I share them with you as we close. Let earth and heaven combine. Angels and men agree to praise in songs divine the incarnate deity, our God, contracted to a span, incomprehensible, made man he laid his glory by. He wrapped him in our clay. Unmarked by human eye, the latent Godhead lay. Infant of days, he here became and bore the loved Emmanuel's name. See in that infant's face the depths of deity and labor while you gaze to sound the mystery in vain. Ye angels, gaze no more but fall and silently adore. Unsearchable the love that hath the Savior brought. The grace is far above of men or angels thought. Suffice for us that God we know, our God, is manifest below. The incarnation, the ultimate test of impossibility. But God can do the impossible for nothing. Nothing. Nothing is impossible with God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks this morning that you, the great God of the impossible, are utterly undeterred by the things in our lives and experience that presently trouble us. Those things that are concerns to us are absolutely not concerns to you. Not in the sense of you not caring, because you do care, but in the sense of you being undeterred by the obstacle itself. And so this morning, we come bringing our obstacles, bringing our concerns, bringing those things that trouble us most, and saying, do with your servant according to your own good will. Work out, yes, work out even the impossible. We know that you can because Jesus came in the flesh. And we give you praise and worship you for that in Jesus' name.